Welcome, everybody. Uh, here we have another program of Europeans in Catalonia. And today we have special guests, uh, Maman Candela, who's a member of our association, Sue Wilson from Remain in Spain, who we've actually interviewed before, and we're going to get an update on um, all that's happened since then, and Debbie Williams as well. So um, just before we get started, I just wanted to um, make a couple of announcements. Um, we're here to talk about uh, this, uh, one of the reasons why our association uh, was set up, because uh, we are citizens, we're a civil society association uh, of citizens who became concerned about uh, our rights due to different political events happening, even though we're Probably most of us would say we're not polit politically inclined at all, but we perhaps came to a point of our lives where we decided, oh, we must stand up uh, for our rights, otherwise uh, we may find ourselves shortchanged in a in a difficult way. So, um, and that's sort of how uh, Europeans in Catalonia started, and uh, here we are, a year and a bit later. We've been uh, running our um, this program, doing some events. Um, campaigning on social media, teaching people or helping people, assisting people with voting rights, campaigning for increasing voting rights uh, for Europeans uh, in, in Catalonia or Europeans in, in Spain. And uh, we could describe ourselves as a group of people that really value our uh, European citizenship. So anyway, just to give everybody who's listening a little bit of an overview about what we're about. Now, let's uh, get into it. Mamen, tell us, what are, we, what are we doing today? Well, we're going to talk about Brexit yet again. Again? Um, yes. Dun -dun. Um, 31st of October <laughs> is almost there, and uh, there's still lots of pending issues. Um, so we have here Sue Wilson from Remain in Spain and uh, Debbie Williams from Brexpat Hero Voice. So I would like to ask both of them about their groups, and perhaps I should start with them, with Sue. And um, uh, I think I understand that um, um, Spain is the country where most British people uh, are living, um, uh, expats, immigrants, perhaps. Uh, so can you explain about your group, please? Sure. Um, Definitely we're immigrants, not expats. It's not a term that we use or that we like to use because it separates us from EU citizens in the UK and we don't think we're any different. Um, the group has been around since the day after the referendum and I've been chair... The Brexit referendum we're talking about, yeah? The Brexit referendum. Okay. Sorry, I'm bearing in mind we're in Catalonia. Yes, yes we, we have to be specific out. about our <laughs> referendum. <laughs> Yes, uh, we've, the group's been going since the day after the Brexit referendum, and I've been chair since September 2016. Uh, so we currently have 5,600 members uh, in our Facebook group, and we have about 17,000 followers on Twitter. Uh, so we're very active. We're all Remainers, and that was a very deliberate decision from the beginning that we wanted a group that represented the Remain voice. And it's been very clear as things have moved on over the last three and a half years how important that Remain voice is because it's not one that's being heard in Westminster. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, how about you, Debbie? Can you explain a little bit um, about your group, Brexpat, Hear Our Voice? Yes, it's a very small group um, by... It's a very small group um, compared to some of the others, between two and 3,000 members. But it's not uh, single-country-based, it's EU-wide uh, and beyond, actually. We have members that are British citizens living across the rest of the world. 
We also have a lot of EU citizens in our group um, living in the UK and UK citizens living in the UK, all those that are interested and affected by um, the Brexit debate. We're also very pro-Europe, we're a Remain group and uh, we campaign for citizens' rights and um, to stay in the European Union. I founded the group myself the day after the referendum, um, although I had done a little bit of research before the referendum in 2016 on my own Facebook timeline and found that the, uh, the interest in retaining EU citizenship and staying in the EU was, um, well, there was a big void uh, amongst my friends, my own friends. And I thought for the first time that week before the referendum, oh, well, maybe this won't go the way I think it will go. And I was living in Belgium at the time, um, which was a very handy place to be uh, <laughs> directly after the referendum. And that's when I started the group. So it was the 24th of June that I started the group myself. Mm -hmm. And um, we are action focused. Uh, we try to promote EU values and uh, the benefits of EU citizenship. So, yeah. do you mind if I ask both of you, mm -hmm. um, what was that personal thing that made you go, I need to do this? I mean, obviously, you have careers and you know family and other other interests, but at some point in your life, something uh, changed around the the Brexit. Obviously, that that sort of you know, drove you to the, to this, and, and, and so that's what I'd like to hear about. Uh, for me, it was definitely the result of the referendum. Um, I think for, for several weeks and months beforehand, uh, I'd assumed it was going to go our way and that the country wasn't that stupid to vote, <laughs> to uh, cut off their legs. But um, as it got closer, I started to be very concerned that actually it might not go the way we all thought it was going to go. And then I stayed up all night to watch the results came in, come in, uh, hoping all night for that one big city that was going to come in for Remain and swing things in the opposite direction, and it never happened. And I was just absolutely devastated. I, I couldn't believe how much it affected me. Nothing has ever affected me like that before. And a close friend of mine rang me at six in the morning, knowing full well that I'd be in exactly the same state that she was in uh, as we watched the results live from different parts of the country. And um, it was a real shock. Mm -hmm. And that shock lasted for three weeks. Mm -hmm. Every day I lost my temper, something I never do. Every day I burst into tears. It was unbelievable how it affected me. And it took three weeks before I kind of came out of that state and woke up on maybe the 22nd day and said, well, OK, you know, that's enough now. Now I must do something about it. So that was the start of it for me. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I was someone who had never been interested in politics before. I didn't know anything about politics. I never wanted to talk about politics in case I showed up my ignorance so this was a whole new uh, area for me to get involved in, to um, get knowledgeable in, and I'm still learning. Mm. And one thing I've found over the last three and a half years is that um, I actually know more than a lot of the politicians. Yes, I don't absolutely. doubt that. Yeah. <laughs> Which was rather scary. You know, the first time I met an MP, I was, you know, I was very nervous and I was expecting to be informed by them. I was expecting them to give me lots of useful information. But no, it they was clear know. they didn't know. 
they wanted that information from me. So I kind of changed my approach after that, and now I go and tell them stuff rather than expect them to tell me stuff. Mm, I can actually relate to that story, not about the knowledge, but um, definitely about the feeling of the the sense of betrayal and and the three weeks of not knowing what to do and not knowing whether I should talk to those people that were supposed to be my friends. Well, in my case, I was living in the UK. I was a Spanish uh, person living in the UK, and after 23 years, well, 22 years, and then the referendum came, and... It was shocking, so I can relate to you a lot. What about you, Debbie? How how, how did the whole thing start? Um, for me, it was probably a couple of months before the referendum was held in 2016. I mean, I've never been involved in politics either at all. I'm very much like Sue. Um, but I, I, would, I was doing my research before, because I could still vote, of course. Even though I was living in Belgium, I still had a vote in, in the UK. So I did my research, and as I was doing my research, um, did some straw polls, and I sort of became really interested in what was going on and I thought okay oh I didn't know that about the EU oh I didn't know this about the EU so I, I also was on that learning curve and I, I you know I made my mind up obviously um, based on the fact that I was living in Europe I mean for myself my husband and my daughter that's how, that's we were earning our living mm-hmm. and we had done that we knew about freedom of movement and we'd moved back and forth from the UK to various European countries to work to, to earn the living so we knew the benefits of freedom of movement Mm-hmm. So when the referendum was held, okay, I thought, do my research, um, do a little bit more. I learned about how great the European Union is, and we've had peace for all this time. And I thought, well, okay, the status quo is far better than um, any other option for the UK and for us as, you know, as a family. Um, and the night of the referendum result, well, we had a party in our house. Not the, the night of the referendum, we had a party in our house with um, some friends from Belgium, and we were sat there. I said, I wonder what's going to happen, you know, in the morning. Who's staying up? Oh, I'm not staying up. I'm going to bed. It'll be fine. I woke up in the morning. And, of course, it wasn't fine. Mm-hmm. And I thought, right, well, okay, I've done all this research. It's not gone the way I want, So what, or we want. What's, what, what's going to happen? I said, right, okay, I better do something about it. I can't sit around. Um, so I set up this group, and it called it Brex Pats Worries and Concerns. That's what it was called first. <laughs> I just invited my friends from all, um, you know, sides of the debate, to have a conversation. It soon turned nasty in some areas and uh, it developed from there, um, Mm -hmm. basically. And then we started writing letters and campaigning and lobbying and and doing a bit of advocacy work. Yeah, Yeah, okay. Well, I think it it would be obviously very important to to talk about the rights of Mm -hmm. the citizens. Mm -hmm. And um, um, both of you are British living um, away from the UK. What is at the moment the situation uh, for the British people, and particularly in Spain? Um, we hear the news that everything's been guaranteed, the, the Spanish government has guaranteed the rights of the British people. Then we hear other news that uh, unless there is reciprocity, nothing's really sure. What is the situation really? Well, the uh, Spanish government brought out the royal decree back in March. This was before we were supposed to leave the first time. And their um, offer was um, along the lines of the rights that are secured in the withdrawal agreement. And the purpose of their royal decree was to guarantee the rights of British citizens in Spain in the event of no deal. So they were basically saying that if there's no deal, you'll still have the same rights as been negotiated between the EU and the UK 
um, at least for a limited period. Mm -hmm. And then after that, we'll get into discussions with the British government about what happens over a longer term. And what, were, what, what was negotiated for us? Do you, do you know? Um, it's this, basically what's in the withdrawal agreement. So it's protecting uh, certain things like the health care and the pensions, but the not residency. residency, but not things like freedom of movement, which are not included in the withdrawal agreement. And no voting rights, is that mm -hmm. right? No voting rights were included? No voting us. rights. Okay. Um, Some so, professional qualifications. Yes. So it was I say it was very similar to what was in the withdrawal agreement, and it provided a lot of um, reassurance to people at the time. But obviously, it also came with the caveat, mm -hmm. as you mentioned, that it's based on reciprocity. And the government in the UK were not putting anything in writing. They were not changing the law. They're still saying there's no need to change the law as far as EU citizens' are rights are concerned, because. It's all there already. Well, based on the, the treatment of EU citizens in the UK, you can understand why people are very nervous mm. if our rights in Spain are not actually uh, in the hands of the Spanish government, but are in the hands of the British government. <laughs> now, this situation was complicated last week uh, by the British government making their own announcement about the protection of uh, our rights in Europe which they did on the Monday, and they said that those rights were only guaranteed for six months. Oh, that was the oh, S1 well. healthcare. That was the S1 healthcare, yeah. etc. So this sent everybody in Spain into panic because they thought they'd already got a better deal on the table. And then it became clear very quickly that actually that wasn't the case in Spain. That was the case in the rest of Europe, but it didn't include Spain because there'd already been a better offer, as it were, from the Spanish government uh, talking to the British government. Oh. So from one minute we had our rights in the event of no deal up until December 2020, and then we only had them for six months, and then it was back to plan A again, and we're okay till December 2020. On healthcare only, though. On healthcare only. But the government didn't tell us that they'd made a mistake by not saying on their website that this excluded Spain because there was a better deal already in, in hand. So, thankfully, the British Embassy were very quick to act. They informed all the groups, so we were able to tell all our members, don't worry, it's not what you've just seen on the government website. And the government did upset, update their website to... to make sure that was correct and said, excluding Spain. Mm -hmm. But, of course, they broadcast the fact when these details came out, they didn't broadcast their mistake. Hmm. So just, it's uh, just a little bit of chaos. Huh? So how do people it's feel about Brexit it? style. Yeah, well, Brexit <laughs> is chaos, I suppose, from day one. But, um, uh, Debbie, how, how do people feel? I mean, um, there's anger, there's confusion, there's a, all a those, sense all of... Every, ad every negative adjective that you can think about, I hear with regard to Brexit. Not one, there's nothing positive, as we all know there's nothing positive, but as people's lives are concerned, you know, those of us living in Europe, it, it's all negative feedback that we're getting. Every time there's an announcement made, people lose heart, and then something may give them a little bit of hope, so then they're buoyed again. So it's, all, it's, it's an absolute roller coaster for everybody, and I don't know how anybody's managing 
So um, we're going to take a little break and we're going to listen to some music. So just to put it on a, a more of a positive note, um, because here we are doing what they say, which is Ramoning. And I, I, actually, I actually quite like that label because I think, uh, yes, yes, if, if we're going to have our rights lost, you're going to have to listen to it and it's going to go on for a long time. So you've got to think hard if you really want to vote that. But anyway, um, just an observation. Here we are, four women who come from different walks of life, from different careers and backgrounds and uh, we've turned into political activists whilst all of us have have said today that we're not at all uh, you know knowledgeable or involved or even particularly interested in politics but came to a point where we're willing to stand up for uh, what we believed in and because of that I'm going to play a song for us and it's Beyonce and it's called Who Runs the World? Who won the world? Girls, girls. Who won the world? 
Okay, we're back. Back on Brexit. Uh, so let's just um, uh, cover, you know, last time we spoke to you, so you were, you were involved in a court case that was going ahead um, to try and stop Brexit. Um, t- tell us about that, because if, you know, a, a lot of people haven't been able to keep up with, with those news. I, I noticed that it wasn't sort of like headlining. So what happened? It wasn't headlining because we got as far as the High Court, but we never made it to the Supreme Court. But the premise of the case basically was um, it was Sue Wilson and others. Uh, that was other British citizens who live in the EU. There was one from France, one from uh, two from France, one from Germany, and myself. And we were. Um, it was us against the Prime Minister, which was Theresa May at the time. And the premise of the case was looking at the referendum in terms of its legality. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the, the, the Electoral Commission had ru- uh, made rulings about some of the evidence relating to the referendum. And there were lots of lies told during the campaign. Now, had what the Electoral Commission found um, about the referendum been found about a general election or even a local election, then the result of those elections would have been overturned. So we were arguing that the same rules should apply to a referendum, mm-hmm. that if the result is proved illegal, then it, the result should be overturned. Now, there was kind of a catch-22 situation because the referendum, as we probably all know now, as it's been said many times, was advisory. It wasn't meant to be binding. Now, had it been a binding referendum, those rules that apply to an election would also have applied to the referendum. Mm -hmm. So the result of the referendum would have been overturned. Mm -hmm. But because it was only an advisory referendum, those rules didn't apply. So our lawyers were trying to argue that it may have been an advisory referendum with a lesser standard of rules to to meet, but it was treated from day one as if it had been a binding referendum. Mm -hmm. So our argument was that it should be treated the same way and that the result of the referendum should be... And the politicians, and every time they talk about it, they're they're saying that it's been voted and now we have to do it and it's will of the people. So so it's still being treated to this moment as as if it was binding. Exactly. Uh, And it has been from day one. You know, the politicians keep saying, you know, we promised we would deliver the result of the referendum. So in effect... It was a binding referendum. Just legally speaking, it wasn't. Mm-hmm. So I'm afraid we didn't win that argument. But it does come up again and again. Um, and obviously we're still using a lot of what we learned in court, mm-hmm. you know, on social media and that to point out, you know, some of the errors. I mean, actually, the um, um, Theresa May's lawyer, um, her QC, actually said in court that, she, that Theresa May was well aware of the issues, but decided to proceed anyway. Mm-hmm. Mm. Interesting. I think it's incredibly sad <laughs> that <laughs> that there's this outcome, but well, at least it can. It's not. still at a, at, a, at a communication level. It's it's very interesting uh, for everybody to know that because certainly I've discussed with people and they say, "Well, it's just democratic, and that's the vote." And I say, "Well, it wasn't just democratic. If the High Court has has said this, 
and uh, they don't know about it. So people knowing that it was found sort of undemocratic or at least not following the Electoral Commission rules is, is an important uh, important piece of information to have out there. So, And I'm not sorry that I did it, you know. I think it was important to, as you say, to communicate that information, even though we lost. Mm. And, and funnily enough, it's, it's, I mean, it's on the books now. Mm. You know, my name is in a legal book, which I'm rather proud of. In you fact, should be. And, uh, in fact, as, uh, my friend, um, who's, a, who's a campaigner, her son is actually studying law. And he's just been studying my case. <laughs> he had to ask his mum, is this Visa Wilson that we know, you know, your friend? So that was kind of weird. I but think you're so incredibly you brave. become famous. You, in Spain, you are a celebrity in a way. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're incredibly uh, brave. And uh, for what it's worth, I'd like to thank you for, you know, standing up yeah, and yeah. defending <laughs> my rights, our rights. So... Well, Debbie yeah. here has been to court as well. So, yes. so yeah. what happened there? Um, we were approached um, by a QC in, uh, in the UK to see if we were interested as a group and me as um, an individual claimant to go to court in the Netherlands, that's where I was living at the time, to ask a legal question about the inalienability of EU citizenship and what it means um, you know, for us to lose it, etc. So we went to court and, we went and the judge heard the evidence from ourselves and the government, the Dutch government, and he ruled in our favour and said, yes, this needs to be referred to the courts of justice, um, the European courts of justice, uh, for further clarification on this question. That then the Dutch government appealed and we lost at the appeal. So we didn't get to go, um, we didn't get to take that legal question to, um, to Luxembourg, to the courts there. Um, and that was quite an interesting experience as well. It wasn't mm. just me, there were four or five claimants uh, representing other groups, British citizens living in the Netherlands. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was an experience, uh, a bit like you, something you never thought you'd ever do, you know. Uh, yes, yes. But, uh, yeah, I'm in awe, really, I'm in awe of, uh, <laughs> you know, where, where that, uh, the will of, of you know, <laughs> one, kind of, one woman or, or Thousands of people is just, you know, uh, uh, finding it unacceptable and saying, well, I'm just going to, you know, go the whole hog and we'll take it, you know, with the, obviously with the help of legal professionals. But those legal professionals can't move forward if it isn't for people standing up and saying, you know, I'm, I'm against this. So Yeah, because the questions asked in both cases, in all the other cases that have been going on, are valid legal questions. And, you know, it would be good to have clarification, especially on EU citizenship. Yeah. Um, you know. And even if you don't win one of these cases... It's always very useful, the information that comes out, mm-hmm. the information that you can quote directly mm-hmm. from um, Theresa May's QC, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, that's all on the record. And, you know, there was court cases before mine, and I'm sure there'll be other ones after. Mm-hmm. And they are all leading you somewhere down that particular road. So even if my case doesn't go anywhere, it might help the next case, whether that's to do with Brexit or not. Mm-hmm. Another grain of salt, as they say. <laughs> and also, you know, let's hope, one of the things we did hope to get out of the case, whether we won or, or not, was that if there's another referendum, which we sincerely hope that there is, that there will be a lot more scrutiny. Mm. However, mm-hmm. 
do you think there will be another referendum and will the result be different? Um, here in Spain, I wanted to comment, in, um, sometimes we have the impression that all the Brits are Brexiteers. And I think it's important perhaps to, to um, let people know that um, the country is very divided. So if there was another referendum, um, what would the result be at this very moment? Uh, it wouldn't be very clear, would it? The latest polling I've seen, which was probably in the last 48 hours, had uh, remain on, I think it was 53%, and leave on 47 So it's still close, but it's gone the other way, and the gap is widening. Mm-hmm. Uh, another result which I saw just this morning, which was uh, also a, a useful indicator, is that now at least twice as many people in the UK want the public to make the decision rather than politicians. Mm. It was over 50% compared to 23%. Mm -hmm. So that's a significant change in public opinion as well. And I think it's definitely moving in that direction and the longer this goes on. But um, don't you think that, for example, a 53 to 47% is not a big enough majority to change the, the, the way of a country? Like, for example, in this referendum, the one that happened in 2016, we are talking about a majority of 1.7 million, taking into consideration that many people didn't vote, um, amongst them the 3 million EU citizens that lived in in, in the UK, and uh, um, is it 2 million Brits that live in, in Europe? Well, that many of 1. them... 1.2 million. One point, well, many of them that live um, more than 15 years outside the UK were not able to... 60%, I think, weren't able to vote. That was the figure I think mm-hmm. we got, 60% couldn't vote. Yeah. Yeah, so um, what, what is your idea? I mean, for example, at this 47 um, against 53%, do you think that would be a majority big enough? Like the same way that it has changed in one direction, now it can change again in the other direction. Shouldn't if- there be a cap? If 52 versus 48% was big enough to, to get us to where we are now after three and a half years, I don't see why a bigger percentage in the other direction wouldn't be a strong enough indicator anyway. But mm. I think what's important if there is another referendum is not to repeat what we did the last time and say, do you want to stay or do you want to leave? Mm. It has to be about this is what leaving will look like, mm-hmm. this is the deal the only one that's on the table, uh, versus the status quo. Mm -hmm. So it's not going to be asking the same question again because, I mean, that would be a terrible idea because you just have uh, people quite rightly saying, well, you know, it was one way the first time. Are we going to do best out of three? Hmm. It has to be a different kind of vote. It has to be these are the real options based on the facts rather than on fantasy, which the last last referendum was all about. Mm -hmm. Let's take another break and uh, listen to a little bit more music. So, oh, it's Beyonce again. Best thing I never had.
Hey, we are back with uh, Europeans in, and we have a couple of announcements before we get back to talking with our interviewees today. Um, just to remind everybody that uh, there's a special event for the Barcelona International Community. It's called Barcelona International Community Day, and that's on the 26th of October at the Maritime Museum, and we will be there. So please do come along and and see us. But if you do come, you have an opportunity to see uh, and meet all people, different associations, companies that are looking to recruit people from international background, um, all sorts of things. So it's definitely worth uh, coming. It's just a, a, like, a, like a fair, if you like, just a one-day event. Um, also, a, a couple of quick announcements here about it looks like UK elections are coming up, doesn't it, with what's going on in the, the British Parliament in the last week. So if you are British and you still do retain the right to vote, because it does expire after 15 years, uh, and uh, so if you're British and live, you're living in Spain, uh, you need to get down to your consulate and you're advised to register for a proxy vote. And the reason for that is that there's been uh, lots of problems with postal votes or voting at consulates themselves and that uh, those votes not making it back in time, not not uh, sure to be counted. So a proxy vote, what's that? It's just um, you assigning somebody else who with their ID on the voting day is going to be able to vote for what they want and then vote again for what you want, okay? So that's somebody who will vote for you in the UK. Usually you assign a family member. And uh, while we're talking about voting rights, EU citizens... Um, from around the EU to the, that outside of Spain, but that uh, live in here in Barcelona, also have the right to vote in town hall and EU elections. So um, we always like to, uh, because we're campaigning voting rights all the time, we like to remind people they do have the vote and and your voice is important. So please go and register. Sometimes there are uh, some difficulties getting onto that registry. To do it, um, you're supposed to go to your town hall that can handle it, but we have uh, you know heard a lot of stories of people having difficulties there. Uh, if you have difficulties to register on the um, electoral roll um, as a foreigner, you can go straight to the Instituto Nacional de Estatística, which is at Via Leitana number 8, and it's open 8am to 2pm daily. Okay, so uh, I would uh, encourage everybody who can vote to uh, get involved and do so and not to uh, underestimate that even though we're only allowed to vote in the town hall and EU elections that it's important to do so and um, a couple of messages uh, from uh, of thanks to our sponsors so legalcity.es are lawyers who specialize in working for foreigners um, they're absolutely specialised in dealing with all the typical problems, whether it's getting your NIE number um, and getting your um, citizenship if you decide to go for it or not. They can uh, guide you through that whole process and they have uh, great prices as well. I personally work with them and I'm really happy with the service uh, they've given me. Um, also, Kingsbrook uh, Idiomas, Kingsbrook bcn.com is a language school where you can uh, visit to learn Spanish and a range of other languages and they do a great job. Some of our members have been there and uh, give raving reports. So there we go. And just lastly, uh, we'd like to take a special, uh, to make a special thanks to the Barcelona Princess Hotel and the AV Services Barcelona who are assisting us very kindly um, in a special event that, that we're running. And so we would like to uh, just give them thanks for um, that assistance. So now, Mamet, back to our interviews and this uh, 
tricky issue of uh, Brexit. What's next? Yes, a tricky issue of citizen rights as well. Um, it's very important what's going on. And um, I'm, I'm wondering if most people here know, in Spain, know what, uh, well, in Spain and in the rest of Europe, what, about the situation of the British living in Europe. Um, Debbie, your husband and yourself have been living in several countries yep. in the European Union. And you've paid taxes in several countries. Yep. And... Uh, and perhaps soon or later, I don't know, one day you will retire. And, uh, and uh, what's going to happen with that, um, your freedom of movement? Can you tell us a little bit about Well, I think this is the cornerstone of the whole Brexit debate. For the, um, it's, it's the bedrock, really. It's freedom of movement and the lack of understanding around what freedom of movement actually is. It's part of the reason that um, we are where we are. Um, so it's not just... Traveling, in fact, it's so much more than traveling. I don't even want to say travel when I when I talk about freedom of movement. It's the right to um, you've got the same rights as every EU citizen, and if you move from one country to the other, you've got the same rights as the national. It's equality. It's not discrimination in the job market. It's a big job market. That's my basic understanding of it. Without visas, without work permits, you can move within the European Union to find work and live. Um, and this is what we've done. My husband's in IT. He's an IT contractor. He um, decided to take a contract in Germany, um, having said that he'd been in the military, so he had lived in Germany before. Um, and that's how this journey started, our European journey started. When my daughter was little, we moved to Germany for a contract. When that contract ended three years later, we moved back to the UK. Then we moved to Belgium. And etc. 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 So we've lived probably 15 years um, with free movement as it is now, without any issues, without any problems. And here we are now, living in Spain. He travels across the EU to multiple sites to work. 31st of October is looming. Nobody knows how it's going to work for people like my husband. And, this, and there are very many of us. It's not just him. It's also students as well. Students. I think a lot of people aren't aware, for example, when I studied um, at the university I studied at, uh, if you were a British or an EU citizen, the rates for every module were a few hundred pounds. Mm -hmm. And if you were from... Uh, completely foreign uh, then it was several thousand uh, pounds so yes. it wasn't a, a difference of 20% it was like by a factor of uh, four or five so for example people who come from Asia or Australia or you know Africa or America to, to study in, um, in in this case it was the UK uh, will be paying you know many 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 times yeah, more level fees. Yes, Ex exactly and yeah. the difference was just, it was a brutal uh, mm -hmm. difference. And uh, halfway through my studies, um, the it was actually not a Brexit-related thing, but the UK decided to uh, stop funding uh, the British students. Uh, and uh, my fees went from something like £200 a, a module up to 2000 But the international people were still paying much, much more <laughs> than that. So, uh, the, it, like you said, it's about non-discrimination. If uh, a university in a country is willing to provide low-cost uh, or subsidised um, education to their um, uh, citizens, they also have to provide it to, to all of the EU citizens. Exactly. And so, And it's the same for... 
for uh, retirement as well. So there, there's just affects so many different groups of people that people don't think about, or perhaps even Remainers uh, voted, um, not Remainers, sorry, Brexiters, you know, voted for the Brexit and just didn't quite think through, you know, when I'm older, would I like to go and live in Spain and have a, uh, enjoy the sunshine? Or would I, uh, if you're young, you know, when I'm older, would I like to work around Europe because my career could have a, you know, better development oh, in a different Oh, we get place? that one quite a lot. Um, okay, so we've had this conversation, so haven't we, many times with many people. People moved to Spain before we were members of the EU. It's not going to be difficult afterwards. We get that all the time. Um, not that there's any afterwards for us. We don't believe that. But it's like, okay, <laughs> well, if you do your research, it was not very easy to move to Spain, not like it is now. Um, and you had to have an income threshold and you had to be able to prove that you could look after yourself and that you had to have a visa. Um, and a friend of mine, their partner, came from South Africa recently as a third country national to Madrid, and it took seven months for them to get their um, residency permit to, and could to they, actually move to Spain. And could they work during that period? No. So technically, not. Well, actually, they couldn't come to Spain for seven months. Well, this was being this was set in progress. Right. Whether it's exception to the rule, I don't know. But I think it highlights the fact that third country national rights are nowhere near no, as attractive a, or easy as being an EU citizen. And the, the big disadvantage, if you're competing, you know, there's say say uh, you're going for a contract at, at a company in Germany, and, uh, you know, the option is, well, this person may be highly talented, but it might cost us a lot of money, a lawyer, and seven months to get their papers. Or this person who's from anywhere else in the EU can get a flight and come tomorrow and, and you know, there's, no, there's no problem. we change already being implemented into IT contractors' contracts. My husband's just had a new 150-page contract oh. sent to him, mid-contract, which has never happened. So they've cancelled the three-year contract and given a new um, given him a new contract, which is 150 pages long, apparently for commercial reasons, which is fine, I quite understand that. And there is a caveat on the first page which says you have to... Uh, educate yourself on your right to live in Europe and work in Europe and make sure that you have the right documentation to be able to prove that um, to uh, continue with this contract. Mm. Okay, so for now that's okay, but that caveat's a new one that we've not seen before in any contract that he's had in the last 25 years. Mm. Mm. So, yeah, well, that, that, sorry. sorry, you go ahead. <laughs> um, I mean, those are big issues relating to freedom of movement, but mm. there are lots of smaller issues relating mm. to freedom of movement as well. I've just come back on, from holiday in an, a European country that's not in the EU. For the first time in many years, I had to buy health insurance in order to go on holiday. I didn't have free roaming when I got there. Mm -hmm. So it's not just the freedom of movement of people who work. It's the freedom of movement going on holiday mm -hmm. from the EU to other parts of Europe. Uh, but it's also the freedom of movement of British citizens in the UK, mm -hmm. who believers seem to only think about freedom of movement in terms of people coming into the UK. They don't seem to appreciate it affects their freedom of movement as well, whether it's a simple case of going on holiday to Montenegro, or whether it's, you know, their, their son might want to study in Paris. So they're are so many different elements associated with freedom of movement. And as, as Debbie rightly said, it's something that people 
haven't grasped at all the complexity. Yeah, mm -hmm. I think um, I, I do have an experience when, when I was back living in the UK, I had um, this friend who was a Remainer. She voted for, for to stay in the, in the European Union. However, um, when I mentioned to her, well, the problem is that not only we are not going to have the same rights, but you yourselves as British citizens, you've got your um, rights as a, uh, as a European citizen. And she said, what, what is that? What is to be a European citizen? I think nobody really knew what rights they had as a European citizen. And uh, that shows how the campaign was based first of people didn't have any knowledge of what about the European Union. Mm -hmm. And it was based on things like immigration that uh, had nothing to do with, uh, with the European Union. Um, but yeah, I think the, the, the rights of as European citizens, people were not really aware what th those were about. Um, do, do you agree? Mm -hmm. And do you think that um, nowadays they still um, think that they're going to be in the same yes, circumstances fight, as before? In, they fight in the negative press as well about the European Union, but that's a whole another, another issue. We've had um, programs about that, where mm -hmm. we went into the fake news and how it happened and mm -hmm. how long it happened and who funds it, and uh, even even so, it's... Uh, but also, I think, in, when my daughter was in school, in, I can't remember which country it was in now, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but she, they, they had um, a, a module, you know, on European Union and, and what it meant and what it did and the history of it, and they had trips... Um, to the Parliament. Um, I don't know if that goes on in, in, in UK schools. Is no. that going? No, <laughs> very no. doubtful. There's, so there's very little mention in the UK at all about European Parliament. I mean, the, you, you, you didn't see EU flags everywhere. Mm. Where there was EU money being spent, you didn't see signs up saying this project was paid for by the European Union, mm. as you do all mm. over Europe. Mm hmm so we had 40 years before the referendum of only hearing bad things. That's right. Uh, the sort of things that Boris Johnson was responsible for the bendy banana story. You mm -hmm. know, it was those kind of silly arguments against the EU that had been going on for 40 years. We, we actually had um, Mr. Tarradellas, which is the maximum responsible for the uh, European Parliament in Barcelona, the European Commission, uh, European Commission in Barcelona, here on on this show earlier in the year, and he actually we we questioned about this and said, why don't you communicate better? And he said, we have no well the word in Spanish is no tenemos competencias. Mm -hmm. We and um, we don't have uh, what's the way to describe that in English? It's not that they're not competent to do it; they they don't have the rights, uh, the like order. a right. No, it's up to, to the na it's up to the member state. It's up to the government, the national government of the member state, not the European Commission to promote the European Union. Well, they it's the member state. We think perhaps they should, because uh, if 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 any. Um, Local government, when I say local government, I'm actually talking about a national government within the nations that form the EU, uh, becomes quite nationalist. Uh, then we get this problem where people get alienated from everything that's uh, all their rights and all the benefits of what the European values are and um, what's in it for them as being a European Union member. And so um, we think that, you know, some kind of communication group should be made within the Commission, um, but it, it, it isn't. They don't it, need it anymore. 
Well, the Brexit... pro-Remain pro groups doing the job for them. Well, and that's one of the things that we do. And in fact, when we, yeah. we came together and I said, I value my, my European uh, citizenship, but I also didn't know exactly what it meant and what European values meant. And that's something that I've learned about. And in fact, if there's anything that's positive about um, the, the political showdowns that have been going on in the last few years is how much, you know, we've all learned. We've all learned about our rights. Um, Absolutely. And, yeah. and we took them for granted, mm -hmm. you know, and we didn't know which ones we had the EU to thank for and which ones we had the UK government to thank for. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. uh, we do now. Mm -hmm. But I'm not sure that the general public in the UK do, certainly not to the extent that, that Debbie and I do. Mm -hmm. And we've done nothing but breathe this stuff for three and a half years. That's and right. it's complex. I mean, even it though is. we've been living and breathing it for three years or so, I still find the legalities of the whole the whole right side of it quite complex and intricate and nuanced. And well, uh, you know, you can study uh, a master's on the European Union. So if, if it's, you know, if you need to do a master's to really understand it, then they, perhaps they have made it more complex than necessary. Uh -huh. uh, but at the base of it, you know, I, I, I think we, especially here in Spain, we see a lot of examples of, you know, how a Spanish bank um, sort of like, you know, takes advantage of its consumers in a way and then it goes through the Spanish court system and the Spanish court system sort of lets the bank get away with it. And then we find the European Union says, no, that is actually classed as, a, you know, some kind of a rip-off or something that's unfair or against the general code of um, ethical banking or whatever whatever they base their rulings mm. on. And then we say, hey, the EU's got our back. And that's one of the reasons why you think, hey, you know, you, at any point in time you could land yourself an a, a incompetent or a nasty national government and you really want to have that... Um, umbrella government above them, and that's extra layer of supranational uh, courts and and um, protection, protection yeah. that that the EU or something like the, the EU can, can the, the framework that mm -hmm. it provides. Because of course, EU laws don't come in without a consensus of these twenty six or twenty seven uh, countries. So it's unlikely that there's enough bad apples in there to make law that will be damaging in general for for us. So, and I find that something that you know we should really value anyway um let's put some music on um and then we'll come back and uh finish off with some questions here we go this one if, if i'm playing the right one it's billy jean yay
as much as it hurts me to turn the volume down on a great Michael Jackson song, uh, we have important things to talk about and limited time. So here we are. How can we finish today's conversation on a bit of a positive note and talking about the future? Well, I think the first thing um, I'd like to say for sure is that we're not leaving the EU on the 31st of October. Um, if you think back to January, February, um, we're actually kind of in a similar position we were in then. Mm-hmm. And we were convinced at the time that we weren't leaving in March and we're equally convinced that we're not leaving in October. Mm-hmm. We don't have a deal. Um, Boris Johnson thinks he's got a deal, but nobody likes it. Uh, it won't get past the EU and it's not going to get past Parliament either. So no deal is effectively taken off the table as long as Boris Johnson or whoever's in power at the time um, is going to abide by the law. So that really leaves us with only one option, and that is either revoke Article 50, which I think is unlikely, um, or an extension. And we already know that the EU27 are talking about an extension and that that seems likely to happen, Mm -hmm. even if Boris himself does not ask for it. Mm -hmm. So we're still going to be having these conversations three months from now, probably six months from now. That'll be great. So that will give you some more time (laughs) to fight and to try to stop um, Brexit then? Absolutely. You think that's... And the longer it takes, the less chance there is Brexit's going to happen. Hmm. Mm. And the more of the older people who voted it might not be around. That and sounds so terrible. many more young people. May they rest in peace. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so many more young people as well mm-hmm. um, who are now of voting age. And, of course, there are also lots of people who've changed their minds. Yes. Now they've seen what Brexit would actually look like. Nobody knew three and a half years ago. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All they knew was these fantasy ideas of what Brexit was going to look like, which have clearly been proved not to be the case. First of all, everyone was told, it'll be better than what we've got already. Then, well, it'll be the same as what we've got already. And then, well, actually, it won't be quite as good as what we've got already, and it will cost us a bit, but it'll be all right in the end. And now I'm not sure anybody's even saying that And now we're down to, we're going to have a shortage of everything. You've got to stock (laughs) up on your medicine. and uh, Stockpile medicines, stockpile on food. No nurses and doctors (laughs) to treat you if you do get ill. You'll have to cross the border and ask for help in Ireland. You'll be fine because we'll have lots of new hospitals. They just won't have any staff. (laughs) So, Debbie, um, I can hear very positive Sue and a bit negative uh, Amy here. What about you? <laughs> Can I go in the middle? Yes, please. <laughs> Can I hedge my bets? I'll go with both. Um, no, I'm actually feeling very positive as well. I think, like Sue, when March came and went, um, for me, I thought, okay, all right, so now we know the longer this goes on, um, the less likely it is to happen. Um, and I also am feeling very positive because of all the people I met that are incredible, all the volunteers that work together, the EU citizen in the UK groups and the, all the British and Europe groups and all these people dedicating their time and their lives um, to, to volunteer and to find out about the whole scenario to do with rights and Brexit and politics and we've all learned so much. Um, and that's a positive take for me that, you know, we have got these wonderful, capable people and sitting in this room here that 
you know, do these things or learn in these things or in informing other people around them and telling people, look, go here to look for that information. I mean, that's positive. There is a community now that didn't exist before. It's a new community. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not saying in any shape or form that Brexit is positive. It is not. It's the most negative thing I've ever heard. But with regards to Sue's words and what mm -hmm. we are building here, it's very, very positive. Mm -hmm. And Debbie and I met because of Brexit. Mm. And we are not only close friends now, we're also neighbours, <laughs> which is fantastic. That's she came to visit me in Spain and fell in love. Not with you. Spain, I had to do it. So, you know, that's all because of Brexit. And it's not just the two of us. We've both made lots of new friends. Yeah, there's mm -hmm. certainly, a lot of, of yeah, certainly a lot of much more interest in, in politics and building Europe. I think... The idea of Europe um, is um, nowadays people do want to fight and to work for for Europe, which is something that didn't happen didn't exist before, before. 2016, mm. I guess. And I and think in our association, are not along political lines anymore. Mm. You know, mm -hmm. your friends are not necessarily those with the same that support the same political party as you anymore. No. Mm -hmm. But they are, on the whole, those people who support the same side of the Brexit argument. Right. And, the yes. and we've all lost friends because yeah. of those and arguments absolutely. too. Yeah, and thankfully we, got the... we made lots of new ones to make up for it. Absolutely. We got the double whammy here in Catalonia because mm -hmm. if you, you know, some of your friends dropped off because of the Brexit and some of others went because you were anti, you know, Catalan nationalism, you know, and then, and that was very traumatising, or at least it was for me. I'm only speaking for myself here, but uh, I know a lot of people that said it was traumatising for them. But then, you know, like you said, we started to regroup and, for example, Merman and I and all the other people in our association came together because we felt strongly about something. And, um, and that's a fantastic group, you know, and it's only been a year and we've shared so much together and we've, you know, had these programs, we've created these events and, and we have our Facebook group where we can, you know, comment on everything that is going on for us and yeah, share that. Perhaps so. the European identity is what we're looking mm -hmm. um, that it's definitely cool, yeah. the common the common bond yeah. shared yes. values. That's yes. without yes. a shadow of a doubt. Yes. That's and we don't take it for granted anymore. No. Uh, absolutely. Okay. So, and on that last note, because we've actually gone over today, we've just we've had so much to talk about. Um, so, I'd just like to join all uh, ask all the uh, listeners if they'd like to join us. So, we have, for example, our group, which is Europeans in Catalonia. It's, it exists as a Facebook group, and from there you can actually also join to become an official member of, uh, of an of the association if you were. Uh, so desire uh, so you can see us on facebook or you can follow the facebook page we also have a twitter channel and uh, we have some information and for example all of the programs that we we've uh, we we air we are available off air as well on on the website which is uh europeansincatalonia.org um so tell me what about your groups what are the names of the groups so if people want to connect with them they can find you Okay, so my group's called Brexpats Hear Our Voice. I won't go into the Brexpats bit now. Um, you can find us on Facebook. We've got a page, a group, Twitter, and we have a website mm -hmm. as well. Okay. And, and we remain in Spain. We've got a Facebook page and a Facebook group. The page is public. The group is private. And also we have a website, which is www.remaininspain.com, and we're Twitter at Remain in Spain. 
Excellent. Okay, thank you very much. I'm just going to uh, play a little bit of outgoing music when, so we can reminisce about when we didn't have these political times as well. So, Prince 1999. <laughs> 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 